welcome to the Discipleship Unplugged podcast. I'm your host, Darren Middleton. I'm the teaching elder at North Geelong Presbyterian. So this is season one, episode two, and today we're going to begin to explore the reformed understanding of covenant theology, which is a hermeneutic or a way in which we understand or read the Bible. Well, now we've introduced our topic of covenant, let's define our terms. Palmer Robinson, in his book, Christ of the Covenant, defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That is, when God enters a relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. Bond means to enter a relationship where two parties are committed to one another. This bond or commitment always has a sign, be it rainbow, circumcision, Sabbath, or baptism. Similar to how the marriage bond has a sign of a marriage ring that signifies a lifelong commitment to one another. Therefore, when we speak of covenant, we speak of a covenant as a bond in blood. In blood speaks of the life and death nature of the bond. That is, the commitment is permanent and binding, as opposed to being informal or casual. Again, we can see the analogy in marriage as a lifelong bond which should only be broken by death. Our definition of covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered, it it reflects covenant-making language. Uh, In Genesis 15, where God makes a covenant with Abraham, the SV Bible says that, that, that he made a covenant, but literally it says he cut a covenant, which reflects the process in which covenants were made, since animals would be cut in half as a pledge or a bond to the death. The covenant maker or cutter was saying, if I break this bond or commitment, let this happen to me. And so in Genesis 15, God passes through the cut animals and he's saying to Abraham, because Abraham is saying to him, how do I know your promises will be true? And he said, because I've made this covenant. And these animals which I've cut in half, he now passes through and he's committing himself to Abraham and to the promises that he's made. There's, a, there's an example of this in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 34, verses 18 to 20, where where Yahweh is reminding Israel of the Mosaic covenant they cut, saying, And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who passed between the parts of the calf. And I will give them into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their lives. Their dead bodies shall be food for the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Now here is Israel who are repeatedly breaking the national covenant. And for them that meant disaster. And not only led to a loss of life, but also of liberty and land. And so they were exiled. Once you entered into a covenant relationship, the only way of relieving the obligations and curses of breaking the covenant was through the shedding of blood. 
As Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so a covenant is a bond in blood that is permanent and it's sovereignly administered. In other words, it's not a contract. In modern times, we defined a host of relationship by contracts. A contract is formal, but sometimes can be informal, and it's supposed to specify failures in a relationship. However, the Lord doesn't cut a contract with Abraham. He cuts a covenant, and there's a difference, because contracts are broken when one of the parties fail to keep their promises. For example, let's say a patient fails to keep an appointment with a doctor, and the doctor is is not obligated to call the house and inquire after them. Where are you? Why don't you show up for your appointment? He simply goes on to the next patient and has his appointment secretary take note of the patient who failed to keep their appointment. The patient probably will find it harder the next time to make an appointment with that doctor because he broke an informal contract. According to the Bible, however, the Lord asks, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you, says the Lord in Isaiah 49 verse 15. The Bible indicates that the ties of the covenant is more like the ties of a parent to a child than a, a doctor's appointment with his patient. See, if a child fails to show up for dinner, the parent has an obligation, unlike the doctor. And so this, this parent's obligation uh, is to find that child and, and to make sure that child is cared for. One member's failure doesn't destroy or end the relationship. And so God is a covenant God who elects a people to himself, children if you were, and he does all that is necessary to make sure that they eat at the Lord's table because a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Now, before we look at the actual flow of covenant history, I want us to briefly consider an example of a human covenant to illustrate our definition. I want us to use the example of the covenant between Jonathan and David. By way of context, the situation in redemptive history is Saul is king, but things are not going well. Saul has disobeyed God at Gilgal, and he keeps the plunder from the Amalekites whom God had told him to punish and to destroy everything because of what they did to the Israelites when they were coming into the land. 1 Samuel 15 verse 2. But Saul thinks better, and he decides he'll keep the plunder. And the wash-up is recorded in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And then from 1 Samuel 15 onwards, the focus moves from Saul to David. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel anoints David as God's chosen one. And at that point, the Spirit of the Lord departs Saul and comes upon David, and Saul himself is now tormented by evil spirits, 1 Samuel 16, verse 14. David then ends up 
becoming one of Saul's armor bearers. And whenever Saul is agitated by evil spirits, David would soothe him with a playing of the harp. Eventually, in 1 Samuel 17, you have that great confrontation where uh, Saul is meant to be the king and leading Israel into battle, but he's fearful of Goliath as he leads the Philistines. And so we have that story where, where David steps up and does what kings are meant to do, which is to defend their people. And so David slays Goliath, and then he returns to Saul. And at that point, we read in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan, that is Saul's son, was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. The text then says that David became part of the royal palace. Then in verse 3 of chapter 18, we read, Then Jonathan made or cut a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan gives David his robe. Why? In essence, David was to put on Jonathan. A bond means to enter into a relationship where the two parties are committed to one another. Jonathan was committing himself to David, to his well-being. To put on Jonathan's robe was to be one with him. This is covenantal language and symbolism. Like in Romans 13, 14, when we are told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, that is, to be clothed in him. And so Jonathan gives David his armor again. We must ask, why? Because in giving him his sword, it symbolized that now David's enemies were Jonathan's enemies. They were now bound together. It was a bond in blood that speaks of life and death, nature of the covenant. That's why scripture says in Romans 12, verses 19 to 21, never take your own revenge, but you are to leave room for God's wrath. Because when you are in covenant with God, our enemies are his enemies. We must therefore allow room for God to deal with our enemies the way he deems fit, rather than taking matters into our own hands. So the Lord is with David, and Jonathan and David are in covenant together. Now after David borrowed Goliath's sword and then permanently incapacitated him, trouble soon followed. Because while the Israelites start singing songs saying, Saul has killed his thousands, they actually finish it by singing, and David his ten thousands. In 1 Samuel 18 verse 7 and, and also verse 16. Unsurprisingly, Saul gets angry and makes his first attempt to kill David. David was then removed from Saul's presence and fled to live among the Philistines. Yet 1 Samuel 19 verse 1 tells us, Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and all his servants, that they should kill David. So what was Jonathan bound to do? Remember, a covenant is a bond in blood. It therefore supersedes every other human commitment. Jonathan's covenant with David means that Jonathan warns David. He also intercedes on his behalf with Saul, his father. 
Now, Saul temporarily relents, but Saul is still determined to kill David. At this point, David reminds Jonathan of their covenant in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 8 and following. David says, Therefore, deal faithfully with your servant, for you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. And if there is an iniquity in me, then kill me yourself. Why should you bring me to your father? That is, what he's saying is that if I have broken our covenant, our bond in blood, then you bring down the curse of that covenant upon me. You yourself kill me. But if I haven't broken the covenant, then surely you will help me, for my enemies are also your enemies. Because a covenant in Scripture is a bond in blood. And so we read that Jonathan responds to David by affirming their covenant, declaring, may the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Indeed, the text says that they affirm their commitment to each other's household. Jonathan is true to the covenant, and so therefore he protects David. Now, after the death of Saul and the sad death of Jonathan and all his brothers, David still remembers the covenant. Consequently, this results in David seeking out and finding the last remaining members of Jonathan's family, a crippled fellow named Mephibosheth, because he wanted to show God's kindness, because the blessings of the covenant extended even to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. In Galatians 3.27, we read, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That is, all who are in covenant with Christ. That, that makes us sons and daughters of the living God through faith. And in Christ, therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither slave or free, there is no male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. In other words, when it comes to God's covenantal promises in Christ, ethnic, economic, biological differences actually make no differences if you put on Christ through faith. All people who have put on Christ are the inheritors of his favor and promises. So, so putting on Christ speaks of God's covenantal promises in his son, but it also speaks to our covenantal responsibilities or duties. You see, to put on Christ is to walk in obedience to him. That's why Paul, when writing to the Romans in Romans 13, 14, he instructs the believers to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. In other words, to be clothed in Christ also means revealing his glory by observing all that he has commanded us. It's why Paul says in Colossians 3.10 that those who have put on Christ, they put on a new self, which has been renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And according to Ephesians 6.11-14, those who have put on Christ they're also to put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand, therefore, 
having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And again, the picture here is that, that God is with us and he will make us stand. He will keep us from falling until that, that day that those who have put on Christ will finally put on that immortal heavenly bodies, which according to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 33 says, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and the mortal body must put on the immortality. Therefore, because we have put on Christ and we are in covenant with him, then all of those promises, those salvific promises that that come to us through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and reach their fulfillment in Christ and his new covenant, that they are ours by faith. And we have this confidence that we will stand and we can honour and follow him. My encouragement, if you want to think about this more, and you might consider buying O. Palmer Robinson's book, Christ of the Covenant. You can get it at, at all the major Christian um, bookstores uh, like Reformers, Wandering Bookseller, uh, and you can take the time to read and study it a little bit more. Anyway, this is Discipleship Unplugged. Blessings and grace to you. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>